why is this such a gastronomic capital, though? I mean, why Bocuse here? Why Arcron here? Why all of these great chefs? Because Lyon is it's really positioned between the north and the south. Right. You are locked in between Burgundy and Road. Lyon, it's the second largest city in France, situated in the southeast of the country, midway between the Alps and the east, and the Mediterranean to the south. This was also a bottleneck when cars became the mode of transportation. It goes right to the heart of the idea of the Michelin driving a destination on the way to the... Completely. Out of that system came chefs like this guy, Danielle Boulou. Welcome to Friends of Anthony Bourdain. A podcast where we talk to friends and colleagues of the late Anthony Bourdain. I'm your host, Emily Fedner. I'm a cook, a host, a content creator, and a pasta pop-up owner. And I'm Fabrizio Villalpendo. I've been working in the restaurant industry in many forms, from dishwasher to short order line cook, and I've been doing it for 10 plus years now, and now have moved on to food media. We want to find out what we missed between takes and what it was like to work with him and share some of those memories with the people who loved him. On today's episode, we are joined by the legendary French chef and restaurateur, Chef Daniel Bouloud. That name is synonymous with some of the most iconic restaurants in New York and around the world. And I've got to be honest, I was a little nervous to interview Chef Bouloud, but he was so engaging and smart and humble. I loved I speaking with and him. He made me laugh a few. He's like a fun He's guy. He's funny. Yeah. And I mean, the special thing about this podcast is being able to talk to, you know, chefs and, and just people in the food industry and otherwise that are at the top of their game. I mean, Daniel Balut, I mean, he's a legend. He's a living legend. I know you almost don't even know what to talk about with someone who is that iconic, but I really love talking to Chef Balut about his humble beginnings because that was a big theme in his episode with Anthony Bourdain on Parts Unknown where they travel back to Lyon, which we now know is kind of like the birthplace of so many iconic French chefs. But I loved speaking to Chef Balud about his childhood and his the way his appreciation for ingredients, the process of cooking has just impacted everything about who he is and what he does. Danielle, the name of his three-star eponymous restaurant in Manhattan, one of many in an empire that stretches from London to Singapore. He came from here, a farm outside the city of Lyon, through the city's great kitchens to Le Cirque in New York, then his flagship. So exactly, and similar to that episode in Lyon where he takes Bourdain, I felt like, it, which was just a wild ride, you know? I mean, they're making sausage, then they're having wine and cooking and hunting, and then meeting Chef Paul Bocuse, the late Chef Paul Bocuse, the great and late Chef Paul Bocuse, uh, the godfather of just the culinary arts. Because this conversation also felt like a similar wild ride where, I mean, especially me, you know more of my story, Emily, where I don't really, I started teaching myself how to cook only a handful of years ago. And the fact that I'm speaking to, you know, Daniel Balud, and we're just talking about French technique and it's you can tell that he's very passionate and that shows I think in this episode and it felt like we related with him so I, much more than I ever would have dreamed of. I, absolutely. I He was just so nice. And I was like so giddy because he asked, he was so curious about us as well mm -hmm. and asked me about my pop-up, which hopefully we get to do a pop-up at one of his restaurants. That would be a career-defining moment. But it was really cool to also speak with Chef Balud about some of the behind-the-scenes moments from his episode in Lyon with Anthony Bourdain, like the fact that that episode took a whole twist that it wasn't supposed to take, and it was interesting to talk to Chef Balud about how that went down. And I also am obsessed with the fact that he admitted that a very iconic, infamous moment in the book Medium Raw, where he's seated around a table eating an illegal dish, actually occurred at Chef Blood's restaurant. I believe there's a statute of limitations there. He can no longer get in trouble for this. So he did admit it. <laughs> so there's a lot of wild stories, a lot of good talk about food, obviously about Tony. and That's memories. Know, exactly. And, you know, if you never get to taste the legendary and, I guess, as you would say, Emily, iconic Daniel Blood's food, you can at least listen to some of his excellent words. So... We hope that you enjoy this episode of Friends of Anthony Bourdain. Here's Danielle Balut. We are so excited to finally be here and chatting with you. Thank as, you. Thank you. <laughs> as fans ourselves. And I guess we want to just kick things off by asking you, do you remember the first time you met Anthony Bourdain and where you were, first impressions, all the like? The first time I met Anthony was 
at um, Leal, across the street from Leal, was Park Avenue Bistro or Park Bistro, Park Bistro, which was the La Jonie, the owner, and the chef was Jean-Michel Dio, and the Metro D manager was Max Bernard. And uh, Jean- Max Bernard used to work for me. Jean-Michel Dio came from my hometown. I knew him uh, as a chef in France. He came to New York. Then they opened Park Bistro. He was the hottest bistro down uh, on the way to downtown. Uh, then in the, maybe I would say, late 80s, early 90s. I don't remember the date where Tony was at Leal, from what time to what time. In any case, uh, they opened Leal, and it was a raging success. And of course, I went there, and mm. I met Tony, but... Uh, Tony was not Tony, but Tony was already Tony <laughs> there. Oh, so, so this was before the book and everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Do you remember sort of like your first impression, you know, meeting him in person and everything? He was like, you know, any other chef you meet, you, you know, as colleague, you always, you know, learn to know each other. And it was the time where there, was, there wasn't social media or anything, so... I don't think we took any pictures of anything or recorded anything for that. Uh, even the meal I had or anything, uh, for sure I had a steak frit because uh, Leal were specializing in sort of butcher cut and and, mm. and, and steaks and, and stuff like that. But there was also some some kind of uh, more bistro-ish food. So Park, Park Bistro across was kind of an elevated bistro and uh, of course, Leal was this popular bistro that was meant to be like a sort of a, a steakhouse for mm. more popular crowd. I love the way you put that. You're like, Tony wasn't Tony, but he was Tony. So he always had his like, <laughs> sick, I think when, <laughs> those of us I, who watched him, he was, we knew he had his personality. He, he definitely had personality despite the fact that maybe he was, uh, and he already had carved a name among us, the industry, and his time there. And uh, there was also a Portuguese chef, I think, that was working with him or after, also after with Tony. And then after we had some celebratory dinners there uh, with with chefs as well at Leal. And, and then I learned more about Tony when the book came out. You know, when you... Read his medium row was his second or third book. I think it was the second, and then kitchen second Confident. book, kitchen confidential, then medium row. And when he wrote medium row, if you read the chapter, the opening chapter of medium row, is uh, having a clandestine dinner with a bunch of fancy chefs around the table, and of course he was here at Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> Did he name uh, the restaurant? In the book? No, it didn't because we had some forbidden food that would have thrown us all in jail if we. Oh, is, this, is it the sparrow, the head, the bird? Yes. I remember this perfectly. I didn't realize I was at Danielle. I am. Mm-hmm. I've read those books so many times. It's amazing. What a fun fact. Oh, a little insight. All along the time when we had opportunity to gather around the table and do something, Tony always appreciated hanging out with the guys for sure. I love that you can now tell us that I was at Danielle. The guys and the girl. And the gal in the kitchen, but, uh, you know, I haven't told anyone when it was at Danielle, but the one who was around the table and read the book knows where it was. So I guess there's a statute of limitations. Okay. We can't get in trouble anymore. No. And now we, can, now we can out Danielle's location of the forbidden dinner. It's amazing. How was Tony's food? How was the food at Lehal? But Tony, of course, was kind of a guest of honor there. It was a very impromptu dinner that we gathered because some friends from Europe had brought us all kind of interesting things. It, it was a very unexpected and uncalculated opportunity that we put together very quickly, but we end up being a good table, good fun. It's amazing. Those are always the, yeah. the most fun mm-hmm. dinners, the, the, mm-hmm. the random ones that are unexpected and they just turn yeah. out. Where everyone just comes together. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The only thing that sets an amateur home cook apart from a seasoned chef is technique and perhaps the right tools for the job. Anthony Bourdain famously revered the knife as the ultimate kitchen tool, deeming the callus it leaves on a chef's hand a mark of professionalism. A crucial companion to a knife is a cutting board, essential for maintaining blade sharpness, 
You can feel it when you shake my hand, he said, just as I feel it on others of my profession. It's a secret sign. And you can't use a knife without a cutting board. A must, especially if you want to maintain the sharpness of your knife for a longer period. The Friends of Anthony Bourdain podcast is partnered with John Booz, renowned for its booze blocks, top-notch cutting surfaces, butcher blocks, and more, all crafted in the USA. Trusted by chefs worldwide, booze block cutting boards are made from sustainably sourced American hardwoods like hard rock maple, American cherry, and American black walnut. Many are NSF certified, scientifically proven to inhibit bacteria growth, ensuring safety and sanitation. John Booz & Co. prioritizes sustainability using renewing timbers and following best practices for forest regeneration. Since 1887, they've upheld a tradition of creating high-quality kitchen products for chefs globally. As a special offer for podcast listeners, visit www.johnbooz.com, that's J-O-H-N-B-O-O-S.com, use promo code PODCAST15, and enjoy a 15% discount on your purchase. This offer cannot be combined with any other promotions. It must be interesting being in your position and having been such an iconic chef for so many years. When you meet someone like Tony and when you met Tony, were you aware that he, you know, admired you? Is, it, is that kind of some, sometimes an understanding for you when you meet the younger <laughs> chefs? You're like, they know who I am and they love me. <laughs> no, no, it's not about how much he loved me, how much he admired me. I think Tony was a genuine, curious man. Tony was always very curious about where you come from, who you are, curious about the food you do. Tony also was a purist and he always appreciated people that could dig in their soul, dig in their sort of background and make food that talked to him. And mm -hmm. I think at the time, maybe I was doing a lot of type of food that talked to him and he kind of appreciated, admired, respected and loved it. Mm -hmm. In Kitchen Confidential, when he talks about his early life, I think to me that was one of the most interesting parts were how passionately mm -hmm. he, he spoke about food. And could you maybe like recall like maybe a dish or a bite of food that you introduced to him or gave him that you were most proud of? Beside the forbidden bird? <laughs> yes, that is obviously at the top of the list. But besides that. <laughs> oh, we had, we had many occasions to be around the table. But I think my biggest moment with Tony was when we were in Lyon together and I was cooking in my home, in my parents' home. Mm. And I say, what am I going to cook to Tony that he never had or he might not expect to have? And I managed to get from my, from a butcher friend, we know a, a big cut of hotter, hotter, you know, the, the cow's hotter. And, oh, wow. Utter. Yeah, the hotter. So the skin of the outside of the hotter with the, you know, the, 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 the milk, um, I don't know what you call it. Uh, nipples. Nipples, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. <laughs> those were, those were taken uh, away, but then it, it, there's this, it's not a muscle. It's more of a sponge than a muscle uh, that you, the, the hotter you, that you poach. And in a corbouillon like, and then after you cool, you slice, and then you roast, uh, kind of a little crispy, almost like it's almost like a tribe between the tribe oh, and okay. uh, and the lungs and um, and and uh, and sweet bread. I mean, it has this combination of texture and taste. And I was cooking in the kitchen and brought that big platter of order, and I put garlic and herbs and, and persillade. I made it kind of persillade. So, so when it's served, it's sliced thin. So you're not seeing the whole udder. Like it's not served that way. Yeah, no, I would like to serve it like sort of upside down with the nipple up. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would have not been nice. I've never ever heard of that being served anywhere. Is there a restaurant in New York? Is that commonly no. served at French restaurants or anywhere no. here? No, no, in America, it don't exist. I have never had it. I've never even considered I don't know why, because I'm, I but, mean, we love everything and we eat everything. And I grew up eating cow tongue in every part mm -hmm. of, of animal, but never has that crossed my mind. Well, I think when I first started learning about food and cooking, I mean, the French, they are masters at making. Nose to tail. Like nose to tail. All the. Absolutely. Wood, yeah. All the scraps. I mean, when, I mean, when we killed the pig, when we killed the pig, it was a tradition 
the day we killed the pig and I was a kid to help also doing things like, you know, you make the sausage, you make the cured meat, you make the ham, you make, uh, mm. you, 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 you transform the whole pig into uh, so many preparations, including the fricasse, what we call where you, when you make the blood sausage, so you take mm. a ring, a ring of books, blood, sa blood sausage on the plate. And then you have a piece of the gorge, which is the, the, the trough, the trough. And then you have a piece of lungs, or a couple of pieces of lungs, piece of liver, a piece of heart. Uh, and then it was wrapped with the coal fat, the whole thing. So when, mm. and, and you make out of a pig, you make about maybe 16 to 20 plates of uh, food that could serve about four to six people. And you will give it to your neighbors and then you trade with the other neighbors that's going to kill his pig and eventually bring you also a fricasse. Also an interesting piece of cut that we never use and never really have on the market is the lungs. Lungs is also very strange and delicious. It's, um, I, I have it's, had lungs before, but I think they're yeah. cow lungs. It was at a Sichuan ah. restaurant. There was lungs ah, in the okay, wait, wait. But pork long is delicious. One thing I wanted to do to Tony, but I didn't have the chance to get that. Uh, it's what I grew up also because we were, I, I grew up on a farm, basically an omelet made with chicken blood. Grew up on the farm. We were doing the farmer's market every week and we were raising a lot of animals, including chicken. And we always kept the chicken blood aside, just the chicken blood. We never mixed birds uh, with anything. And then that will be our Friday because the market was Saturday morning. Uh, so the chicken will get killed on Thursday night or Friday morning. And then uh, we will make a big omelet of chicken blood that, you know, you cook it like a, like a, almost like a, uh, like a tortilla. Oh, and yeah. then after you turn it and then you cut slice like wedge of that mm -hmm. and that was your dinner so <laughs> i am fascinated by this and i just thought of something is there a dream dish for you like a dish that you would have loved to serve at one of your restaurants but you just you just know it would never sell the mm. american public as sophisticated uh, as some of us like to pretend we are, would never order. Is there just a dish that you've always dreamed uh, of serving that wouldn't that, happen? That, that one is high on the list for sure. The hotter and the chicken blood uh, tortillas omelette. Uh, I call it omelette because the blo uh, blood, uh, like a blood sausage, but uh, made with chicken blood. That's very unusual. And it's very healthy, actually, and has a lot of iron. And, you know, when you grow in the country, uh, you eat everything, but with a purpose, with a purpose of nutrition, with a purpose of, of varying your, uh, your, your diet, your menu, and I think it's the most interesting and fascinating thing. I'm so curious what that must taste like. Yeah, and it's, it's an omelet, so it's eggs and chicken blood, yeah? No, no, there's no eggs. It's just oh, blood. No it's 100% blood. You oh, just like blood cake. You, oh, you just, yeah, you yeah. just you just put a little bit of cream inside, seasoning, herbs. You can put a little bit of garlic. Uh, you you put a little bit of garlic, some fresh herbs. You can put a little bit of spinach if you like, and and you just cook it like this. And of course, the blood coagulate. Yeah, and, and become so. That's why with a little bit of cream, it it soften a little bit the coagulation, mm -hmm. so it's not too gummy. Oh, so would you say the texture is almost similar to an egg omelet? No. Well, yeah, but the cooked, a fully cooked okay. eggs for sure. Not as soft and runny. On the internet. So this is very niche. So what, what is that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's super niche. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like, Google's is... not even touching up with anything right now. You no, know, we, we, at the farm, we never wasted anything, but yeah. we will not eat rabbit blood or guinea hand blood or turkey or anything so dog what's the reason for dog because chicken was certainly maybe the purest the finest and the mm. lightest maybe in flavor i don't know i never asked my parents why chicken and not the other <laughs> sometimes it just is what it is that's how we do it so well, pork blood pork blood and chicken blood were the definitely the two things we were eating and in any case tony yeah, of course, boudin, boudin noir. You find that in yeah. Bistro. Duck blood. We do that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Tony loved food with soul, food that 
mm. spoke about the past and you know the carry on of tradition the uh the history about food the um, the, the why and how and where it was happening yeah for sure That's something that really struck me about your episode of Parts Unknown in Lyon, which, by the way, Lyon seems like a dream place to visit. But I loved when you guys were at Paul Bocuse's restaurant and he was, you know, it was so clear that Tony had such an appreciation for these classic dishes you were being served. And in particular, there was the, what what was the dish? It was the dish of of the rabbit that was cooked in its Mm. blood. Oh, yeah. That was so classic. He says, I mean, I've never even heard of it before that episode. Can you tell us about that dish? Of course, c'était le um, bièvre du... Professor Couto, I think he called it. And it's basically an entire wild hare that is marinated and then is braised on his bone, of course, whole with the head and the ears. And it's a, it's a technique that you have to wrap almost the lièvre into a sitting position you're putting in a, in a, in a cheesecloth or something, and then you can braise it, basically slowly braise it with vegetable and wines and cognac. And, and then you um, finish the sauce often with some fruits, fruit jam. So it could be a red currant uh, jam or a, um, a currant, um, often a currant jam. After it's, it's cooked, you, uh, you unwrap, and then you finish it again in the sauce and you pass the sauce. And of course, in the sauce, often this is a dish of the fall. So there will be wonderful mushroom in the preparation, mm-hmm. root vegetable, mushrooms, not so much spice as seasoning, uh, a great seasoning around. And of course, always some herbs also with that. It's falling to the bone. You have to make sure you braise it to the point where it falls off the bone, but it's still remain together this was served tony was like we need a photo of this it was, it was a precursor of what was to come so i know, I know. And, and 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 definitely paul bocuse wanted to tease tony like there was no other he was i, I think paul bocuse was giggling every time there was a dish coming because i i told tony when we went to see him i say you know i hope he will be feeling well and he can spend maybe 15 minutes with you and with us. You know, I want to make sure, I don't know how much time he's going to be able to spend with us, but I'm sure we're going to have a good time. And we arrived there. In that episode, just the childlike <laughs> wonder on Giddy. Tony's face was amazing to watch. He was intimidated and he was happy. <laughs> and he was, uh, for him, he was a dream come true. And and then Paul Bocuse assisted to spend the whole lunch with us. And he sit down next to Tony for the whole lunch. And he just wanted to see Tony's reaction. He wanted mm. to see, he wanted to make Tony happy. And, mm. and that was really something that I was so touched and so proud that uh, he was able to do that. And during the lunch, so the next day we had another shooting and the Paul Bocuse uh, segment was going to be done. And Paul say, well, tomorrow I have planned another lunch and we are going hunting. And Tony was like, we're going hunting. <laughs> this was not in the plan of the, the, the shooting. And uh, Paul said, yes, yes, yes. Because you're going hunting, you're going hunting. And then he asked someone to give him a phone and to put somebody on the phone. And on the phone, he's calling the housekeeper there. Uh, it, was, it was basically a garage. It was like a shack that inside mm-hmm. the shack, he had made a little hunter's cabin. He had mm-hmm. a hunter's cabin in a shack. And, but, uh, you know, you walk into that, you know, metal gate kind of garage and uh and and uh, inside the hunting lodge was sort of a beautiful dining table a fireplace all the all the souvenir of his life all around the walls and a little bed in the back because sometimes he would stay overnight there to go hunting early in the morning for the dog mm-hmm. uh a, a little bathroom so he, he created a little um place to gather with friends of course, he insisted to drive Tony uh, along the lake. It was not a lake. It was a, uh, like a pound because the whole region is made of pound. But the funny thing on the phone, he called the innkeeper 
uh, the housekeeper to to go on the pound and break the ice and put some bread so the duck can start to come in come back because when the when those pounds are icy the ducks don't come back so mm. and then they managed to get duck coming back and flying around <laughs> it was the lodge was so cozy i just feel like uh, no. people in france know how to live and and we are doing everything from here not I only that but couple of friends hunters that was invited for the lunch uh, you know local local Lyonnais, yeah. some chef were there paul may have planned in advance to have other people coming right. and bringing and bringing their hunts so everybody brought their hunt we had woodcocks that uh, we were at to pluck we had partridge we had duck and we all had to pluck those birds to have lunch <laughs> so we were all sitting around the bucket and uh, and and sitting around bucket, I seen a picture, and we were Tony was plucking bird with us, and and this scene, I mean, we could not have produced it. It had to yeah, be yeah. Paul Bocuse to produce it. How did Tony do with the plucking? Because <laughs> since you grew up on a farm, you were probably and obviously working in restaurants, you were probably. I was super pretty good. good. What's very important yeah. when you pluck a bird is to not rip the skin, and so yeah. it take it take dexterity to know how to hold the skin and pull the feather at the same time. And uh, of course, Tony knew how to pluck a bird. <laughs> yeah. Tony is uh, Tony knows how to do everything. Knew how to do everything yeah. for sure. So, so good. I, I I feel like we're all this generation, we lack those skills. But oh my, my grandmother, she was killing her own chickens, plucking them. That's mm -hmm. just how it worked in, in the motherland. Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of cooking and making amazing things, I remember the scene when you guys were at Bar Balloud, um, and you were showing some Leone's specialties like sausages and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, do you still serve all of those things? Of course, uh, less. Uh, that was also one time. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, the food critic of the New York Times of the time. So Frank Bruni was um, 04 to 09 at the mm -hmm. time. So this was a little bit after he was the critic. So he must have been like 2010, 11, 2011. Tony and Bruni had a lunch at DBGB downtown, the restaurant I had that was specialized in sausage and mm. uh, charcuterie. And I had about 16 different sausage on the menu. And of <laughs> course, I made every piece of so every sausage I had and every piece of meal. I, we were doing some fried pork belly, also called rillon in French. And all the different sausage I had, it tasted them all uh, with Frank Bruni. And I think they had quite a blast uh, together because, you know, sausage making, sausage tradition, the, the traveling through sausage, the journey through the flavor and the origin of certain sausage, Tony loved that. I mean, for mm -hmm. him, as long as it, it has a birthplace and it has also a, a story and a history about it uh, that was right in the alley of Tony. And uh, we had such a good time. But Frank Bruni was a gentleman, and a man that he was not originally a food critic. I think he was more in politics uh, than mm. food. But I think he was a fair, a very fair food critic. And one time at Danielle, and I didn't really knew him personally, neither I met him until I met him with Tony after. But when he came to review Danielle once, he came and his first visit, it was his first visit for maybe a series of four or five visits. And we weren't reviewed for maybe five or six years. And he came and sit down. I remember there were a table of five or six people in a corner of the dining room. And at the time, the dining room had two levels. There was two steps down for the center and step up. And we recognize him and we pretend that we haven't recognized him because we tried to do business as usual. And while he started, he, he was starting his meal and a busboy trip on the stair and dump a tray on his back. But the whole tray with dirty glasses of wine and all that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if there is a moment where you want to shoot yourself, it's really that one. I mean, in a sense of like 
saying, like, what am I going to do? This is... Oh. And, no, I'm, uh, I'm thinking of all so... the moments that I've done. <laughs> we, have so... been, we have been that bus boy. <laughs> so now we have to first clean up behind and take his jacket because jacket was drenched. And we have to take his jacket off quickly. So now he has to dine in his shirts. Everybody else have to wear a jacket. And he didn't move. He didn't say anything. He had his meal. Downstairs, we were cleaning the jacket and drying and trying to give his jacket back as fast as possible. <laughs> and then we brought back the jacket and we finished. I mean, we, we continued to operate because the restaurant was packed and, you know, we couldn't just slow down anything. And we continued to do the service. We serve him everything. He paid the bills. He go home. And we didn't know what to expect after that. We felt like, what's going to happen to us? We could just collapse totally and kill the restaurant like that. And uh, he never came back. It took him maybe five, six months to come back. And then he came back and then he gave us four star. But, uh, you know, he felt that it was not the right time. It mm. was not a good day. It was not the right time. And he should come back. And I felt That's that a was yeah. fair thing to do. So fair, yeah. like give you guys more time. And mm. did he ever mention the, the busboy incident in the review? No, but we did mention it together when with Tony when we were together at DBGB. <laughs> <laughs> no, he never mentioned anything. No, no, no. He was very, I felt so humble and touched by, by the, the fact that he spared, he spared me, basically. Yeah. Now it's funny. Now we can laugh. Maybe because the, the restaurant didn't yeah, go under. Maybe the laundry service was just so good at Daniel Baloo. They're like, yeah, no, that's uh, it. I actually did do that once. And we, we, I spilled a tray of champagne glasses on someone's lap when I was a server, and we had to dry clean. We we paid for all the dry cleaning. I was like, Where were you working then? I was serving at Chinese Tuxedo downtown. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I used to serve there, and um, I had many many issues. Not many. Okay, I was a very good server. Let me preface by saying I was a very good server, but because I was a very good server, I was always tasked with taking care of the more like VIP tables. Mm -hmm. And so I just remember it was table and I think they were like not like a Russian older I don't know someone special and I was just holding this tray and it's the it's the champagne flutes and they're so precarious and one one one's kind of tipping you're like you see it it's slow motion one is tipping and they you know that the whole it. tray is gonna just go down and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it and so anyways that's what happened yeah champagne flutes and this okay. martini glass it's typical the other day we had a cocktail party because we're opening cafe boulou and we had a little party with drinks. And of course, I am talking and I'm moving my arm and the waiter is next to me and he's holding the tray nicely and off. I hit the tray and the whole tray fly to the floor. Oh Honestly, God. it's the trays. It's the trays and those tiny little dainty glasses. Yeah, they, need yeah, to, they need to be totally. on the back. Thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. That idea no, with glasses with long stem is not a good thing. I mean, it's it's awful, and I remember every time we had like big, we did like gallery openings and things there. And they'd always have me up front with the tray of champagne flutes, and I'm like, don't haven't you guys learned? Don't put me in charge of the champagne flutes anymore. <laughs> that reminds me of we when we interviewed Sarah Moulton, and she was telling us she was part of that book, and um, mm. where like the, the the worst thing that ever happened to every chef, like what it was. Was, it was it was so called good. Don't Try This at Home. Yeah. Did you participate <laughs> in that book? I know, I, I, of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What was, was I don't, that your I don't, I don't. I don't remember what was on my cell. No, I don't remember. I have to go back to the book. Uh, she gave me her copy, so I'll read it. I'll let uh -huh. you know what you said. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm kind of curious now uh, with the, the situation with the food critic. I mean, back then, I feel like it was, you know, the New York Times, the, all the big magazines. But now, because of social media, mm -hmm. everyone wants to be a food critic, you know? And yeah. whether they have credibility or not, whether but the following, you know, a lot of people have a huge following, which is insane. So I'm curious what your perspective is that now there's a bunch of food critics all over the city. It's uh, it's good. It's not only all over the city. It's all over the world. Mm -hmm. and yeah. I, I, I feel that before social media, we could earn popularity just by magazine because the power of the media was then very important. And mm -hmm. by television, there were there were many ways to be able to be 
maybe as popular as you are today, except uh, social media, I think, push it in a wider and certainly more generational diversion of mm -hmm. that. I'm impressed sometimes by uh, some young people, the, the the work they put in, and not even young people, but some some people. I I uh, I'm impressed by the 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 work they put together and the way they um, express themselves in in their either review and uh, for example, there's a there's a food critic in France that everybody hates, but he's still a guy that people watch and listen and 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 follow. And I love the way he he does his review now. Mm -hmm is almost like a is almost like himself going through the motion of going to a place sitting down and and talking and and is also a very good writer and mm -hmm. and, and he speaks french in a very very um uh sort of perfect french interesting mm -hmm. way and by listening to him you can sometimes laugh Uh, you can sometimes feel sorry for the guy he went to visit, <laughs> and sometimes you can be surprised by what he does. It's almost like telling like a story through the experience of of dining. Very much, and uh, and he tell why he liked the place, and mm -hmm. and he talk about the food, and then he always talk about the check at the end, and he always say, "Am I gonna come back?" And that's uh, the answer that everybody wait. <laughs> and then if if it's a yes, uh, and maybe give the reason why. And if it's a no, we understand why. <laughs> also, <laughs> you know, it's sometimes I... the price versus the what he got for and all that. So, so maybe you should try. Do you f speak French a little bit? No, I was just in France actually in in September, and I vowed to myself that I would start learning French because I can see myself spending a lot, lot, lot more time mm -hmm. in um, in France. And I came to French food later in life, which I don't know if it's because I'm a naysayer or a contrarian, but I feel like in my youth and my obsession with food started more, I was obsessed with Italian food, of course, but a lot of Asian food, a lot of Southeast Asian cuisines, a lot of different niche cuisines, Nepali food, things like that. But now I'm in my 30s and I just... I have like gone full circle where I am currently in a French food obsession. Now I'm like, I finally get it. And we often get the stamp like, oh, the French, it's butter, it's cream, it's heavy, it's... And then people are eating Italian food where they're throwing butter, cream, Parmesan, and, and more, <laughs> and, 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 and anything. And, and you know, the, you have a bowl of pasta where you have more fat and an entire stew of chicken and cream. <laughs> It's, I mean, exactly. And, I, and also, I mean, my my family comes from Ukraine, so the Eastern yeah. Europeans are not shy of dairy yeah. and, and fat. Dairy, so yeah, yeah. I think what always bothered me when I was younger or what I mistakenly assumed was that French food was really pretentious. And, and again, I admit that this was a me thing. I didn't feel necessarily embraced or I didn't want to embrace it. And I felt like it was pretentious. But what I found so interesting watching your episode with Tony and, you know, even we spoke to Jacques <laughs> Papin as well. And just as oh, I nice. learned more about French culture and French food, it's actually has incredibly humble origins. Like you mm, grew up on a farm, much. the foods, the sausages, like all these things are very humble and There's just such a beauty to it that I guess I personally didn't realize. I just, I assume it's all the three Michelin starred restaurants that are so fancy and yeah. so, you know, pretentious, but they're not. It's, it, it, they have humble origins. And I think you guys did an Very excellent much. job doing that. For example, you know, uh, in, in social media and uh, watching Jack cook, it's such, for me, it's such a back to the memory lane of, what I grew up with and his little technique and his little way of making cheap, cheap, cheap meal delicious. You know what I mean? He has a way to inspire you to do a very good meal with low budget. And, and I, I love what Jack does. Yeah, exactly. Well, so I've worked in the restaurant industry for many years, but I'm new to cooking for only a few years now. But I think that was the crucial thing that I, so when I first started, I, I, you know, was very 
curious and obsessed mm-hmm. with French cuisine. And like you said, like the little adjustments in technique can take something very humble ingredients and mm-hmm. just maximize the outcome that you get. And, and the French have so mastered that. that. That's one of my regrets. I didn't go to culinary school. I actually did work as a line cook at Frankie's Spuntino, and I've been cooking for uh-huh. a while. And speaking of Italian food, I actually own I love pasta. it there. Yeah? So it's, you it's you own the what? You own I a pasta? I have a pasta pop-up here in, in the city Where? called Petit Pasta Joint. It's based out of Raffetto's in Greenwich Village. Cool. And uh, my business partner is the fourth generation Raffetto. And we basically transform the pasta shop into a large communal table and do big pasta dinners. You're going to have to come. Cool. I will I will send you all the information. I like that. A, yeah, you know, yeah. It's so fun. We do a lot of pastas, but because I'm not Italian, I always tell Sarah, my partner, I'm like, I have no allegiance to tradition. Like we serve a dish with miso brown butter and then I will mm-hmm. include like Russian and Ukrainian and Uzbek spices in the food. Anyways, we'll t- I'll tell you more about it another time. <laughs> okay, okay very cool. But my point is I, that my biggest regret is that I don't know any French techniques. And as I move through the culinary world, I realize the French technique, it's not just people don't just say it like that's. That is the backbone of so much good cooking. Very much. And also backbone of sort of the education of young chef. And uh, they have to grow to that ritual. And I will say that there wouldn't be many cuisine that would have evolved the way they have evolved without sort of the, that foundation of French cuisine to begin with. Yeah. You think about like Vietnamese food and a lot of other mm-hmm. foods that have had French impacts um, have changed the way they cook, maybe using ingredients from that place. And that, I love that beautiful um, melding. Very much. And I think, uh, you know, I, I learned to cook in the 70s. And um, 60s and 70s in France and 80s, we had a lot of Japanese chefs, a lot of Japanese chefs coming to France to learn French cooking. And Paul Bocuse, early on already, found that Japan was the closest to France when it comes to seasonality, cooking with seasonality, where ingredient was the most important thing to cook with. Mm-hmm. You know, everything starts by ingredient, by season, and by also simplicity and perfection in a way. Paul Bocuse sort of created the first bridge between Japan and France and became best friend with Suji. It is a famous school in Osaka and they are one in Tokyo now and maybe other. Uh, but, and it's the son that is running it and maybe the grandson now. But at the time he was his father that created the school. And the Tsuji school, uh, T-S-U-J-I, was really based on the role model of France. And Japanese understood that in order to evolve with their own cuisine, they had to study a parallel cuisine that could sort of be understood by their chef and also learn new technique, learn um, new combination of things. And that's, I think, interesting, but that's what's happened in America in the last 25 years is that a lot of ethnic chefs have learned also in Europe from French. So the South American chef from Mexico to Argentina, I think in the last 25 years, they went to Spain because that mm-hmm. was the rising of Farron Adria and all that. The generation, you know, of even Thomas Keller, Tom Colicchio and all that, that many of them, they had to go to France to, to kind of learn their skill there. And then after there was enough to learn in, in America, uh, enough chef in America to learn the skill. And uh, like, you know, David Chang, he worked at Café Boulou before. Mm-hmm. Many chefs work at Le Bernardin, at Daniel, at Jean-Georges, at Keller, and all that uh, before they went on their own. French cuisine still play a big role uh, either in the, the training of becoming a chef. Uh, it's important. And also in the uh, everyday life, uh, we... What I like about French cuisine and Italian uh, similarity, but maybe not to that extent before, where French cuisine, you have the cuisine bourgeoise, which is the, the, the cuisine you prepare in, 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 in home, but elevated home cooking, I would say. Mm-hmm. And then you have the cuisine, not the country cuisine, but 
the cuisine regional, the region, every region, a specialties and cuisine and that we find done in Italy with all the different regions. And then after you have, of course, the cuisine of bistro, of brasserie, and, and then the, the, the fine dining uh, cuisine as well, the haute cuisine. Uh, cuisine gastronomique, which I think cuisine gastronomique, not other cuisine had that. You don't have that in Spain. You didn't have that yeah. in Italy. You didn't have that in Germany. Only France could have elevated the cuisine to yeah. haute cuisine. And uh, and then after that, that happened and bleed all over. And now, you know, you go to Atomics. It's, in a way, a, a form of haute Korean cuisine. Yeah. <laughs> um, you go to... Uh, you go to Cosme, uh, yeah. it's kind of a form of old Mexican cuisine. <laughs> yeah, it's all, it's everything is so global now. And I definitely mm -hmm. feel that social media has contributed to that globalization of cuisine and cooking. Mm -hmm. We could definitely keep talking to you forever. Yeah. And I just thought of yeah. six questions that we have to, I know we have to wrap, but we have one last question that we like to ask all of our yeah. guests, which is if you could describe Anthony Bourdain in one word, what would that word mm. be? Unsaciable. Insatiable. 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 Like Translated for guests. An insatiable eater. Tony, live for food and for, you know, Tony was so passionate about community and, and what made that community stick together. And I think often the, what kept them together was food. And I think he could dive deep inside and and relate to that. So I think he was insatiable and unstoppable mm. <laughs> in his search for culture around food, for sure. Well, he is, and food does, food does bring everyone together. He was a big catalyst of that. He's the reason the three of us are here right now Absolutely. speaking, and it's just such a beautiful thing that the legacy um, continues. And Last night I was talking to someone. He was telling me how much... How uh, upset he is that Tony is not with us because that's the only show he watched because he thinks that there haven't been anyone yet that have been able to replace him. Yeah. And he watched the show over and over just for the fact that um, there was no one like him. Mm. There, and, and, you know, there never really will be. It's just bigger than life. Bigger than life. Absolutely. So intelligent. Tony was a very, very smart man. Mm. Uh, but he was also able to fly low and stay at a zone that many people cannot feel either comfortable or knowledgeable enough. And, he could do uh, both. Oh, yeah. He didn't mind to fly high with guys like me, but he didn't mind to fly low and go in Vietnam and sit down with the guy in the middle of the yeah, street. That's why everyone loved him. He was, he was everyone's favorite because he could do all the things and he was comfortable and at home doing all those things. You know, it was, he was just a humble, he seemed like I, me speaking as if I know him. Unfortunately, we, neither of us ever met him, but, um, but I think that's how amazing he was that, like, even though most of us only experienced him on the TV screen. Everyone feels like they know. Everyone, yeah. Yep. No, and, and, and I feel Tony, like that's a unique thing to be able to do. And Tony was, in a way, shy. Uh, he, he was shy and he, he knew what he wanted to do and be with. And, and, uh, and I love the team that worked with him because mm -hmm. they were able to adapt. All the, all the time with Tony because Tony had his own mindset and he wanted to make sure that it reflected what he felt rather than just a bunch of producers thinking that they're going to just, you know, put it in the can the way we thought it's going to be. Uh, everything that uh, Tony did, he was not always on paper. He was just coming out of Tony. Yeah. An icon. Danielle, do you feel comfortable sharing? Uh, where were you uh, after you found out of the passing of Anthony's passing? I was in New York and I was speaking with uh, Eric when I learned the news. And uh, we were, everybody was stunned. And I was, I was in New York and I was so upset because, um, you know, it's not the news you want to hear and is... Also, I was 
not upset, but sad for Eric as well, that he had to be the last one to see him. And I was, uh, it was definitely uh, something that we had so much love and respect for Tony and, and we knew that, you know, life could be challenging for him. Life is challenging for always many people, but um, particularly maybe, but no one could see deep he was maybe in his sadness. And at the time, I think, uh, you know, we all respect the privacy of his family and of his loved one. And uh, we definitely felt stunned and, and sad for sure. Thank you for sharing yes. that with the chef. And I don't know if Eric will. I don't think it's a moment he wants to share too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's many good moments with Tony, and I think it's important to continue to share them because we have a credible memory uh, of. Uh, and if you weren't with him, you could relate. Yeah, we do really like to focus on the, the celebration on the celebration and the positive. Of things. course, of course, yeah. exactly. His, his life and it's, it's not It's It's huge what he built, huge what he left us with. Uh, I think it's so important and uh, for generation and generation to come, I think it's going to be an aspiration. Well, I know that we're wrapping up, but I think that's something to me that is so special is I've spoken to people in their sixties, seventies, love Anthony Bourdain. I've even spoken to a younger sibling who, you know, the people in the early twenties that have read the books, they they've watched the, the footage and just the range and people that he's influenced. And I think, I think it will always, <laughs> it's a huge range. And I also don't think it'll ever be dated. I think it's so evergreen. Mm-hmm. I feel like we'll be having these discussions 10 years from now, 20 years from now and new generations to come. Like the, that show is still applicable. Everything he does, it doesn't feel dated ever. Tony was an incredible writer. And I think he had a lot of admiration also for Bill Buford in a way could write in, in a, not a similar way, but in a very captivating way. And uh, I was very happy to have been able to put them, the two of them together in Lyon when, uh, in that episode when he shared time with Bill Buford that was, you know, kind of writing his own book there in Lyon. And Tony came and uh, I will love to see what Bill, words have, he has to say about Tony because he had, Bill had admira- a lot of admiration for Tony, but Tony had also... Mm-hmm. Love it. A lot of admiration for Bill. Thank you so much, Chef, for spending uh, your time with us and for sharing your memories. Yeah, thank you, Chef. Uh, honestly, it's such a pleasure to be able to yeah. have a conversation with you. This is great. Thank you, yeah, Emilia and Fabrizio, and look forward to have more conversation with you and maybe sit Ooh. around the table too. I would yes. love to, and I'll try not to spill any martini glasses. <laughs> yeah, no spilling. <laughs> thank you for listening to today's episode of Friends of Anthony Bourdain. You can listen along wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, review. Let us know if there's someone you're dying for us to interview on the pod. And be sure to check us out on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, all the social media platforms at Friends of Anthony Bourdain.